This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Brian Tetta, executive producer of The View. It's Thursday, and I'm joined by Alyssa Farrah Griffin. This is Behind the Table. Hello there, Alyssa. How are you? I'm good, Brian. We are happy to have you here today to talk about our appearance, a lot of things, but to start with uh, the appearance of Vice President Kamala Harris with us yesterday. We talked about it again today on the show. You asked her a question about what to do uh, about the border crisis, and she answered by saying Republicans who want Trump back in the White House would rather blame Biden than work on a bipartisan solution. What do you think about that answer? So first and foremost, thank you, thank you, thank you to the VP and her team for having her come. It was it was really cool. And I mean, I I was hearing from people ever. Everyone was watching her show. Yeah. I think everyone was glued to see what she had to say um, on the border. So she's 50 percent right. So right now there's a, a battle over government funding, border funding, Ukraine funding. And the White House, Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans have all agreed to the terms, which would inc- increase border security funding. And House Republicans are blocking it. They're doing it at Trump's direction because he'd like this to be an election year issue. However, that's sort of a like a micro version of everything. My Mm -hmm. question was about addressing the root causes of immigration and broader immigration reform. And that I felt like um, we didn't get a full answer to. And I get it. She's limited on time. But um, this would this bill that she's talking about would simply be a stopgap funding bill to get more money to the border. It doesn't actually do anything to address having few people, fewer people try to come illegally, trying to make it easier to come legally and so on. I get frustrated with this issue because I do think it's a political football on both sides. And she I did acknowledge that it's an important issue. It, and and well, I and, think and she and, and, and absolutely. And to her credit, she has traveled to the border. At one point, she was getting a lot of criticism. Mm-hmm. She has met with some of the leaders of the countries that a lot of the migrations coming from. Um, but I, th- I think that there's going to need to be a little bit more of an answer to appeal to moderates and independents who this always ranks in the top three issues. And the reason I believe, yes, the fentanyl aspect that impacts so many people. But if you're not in, you know, on the coasts of this country and a white collar job, if you're in the service industry, if you're in the agriculture industry, the immigration crisis directly impacts you. So I expect they'll keep workshopping their answers on it. um, And I hope that the right actually looks for solutions and doesn't just try to keep the crisis going for political points. Let's talk about this in the macro sense. I mean, you're someone who's no stranger to spending time with the vice president of the United States. You worked for Mike Pence. You were in the White House. You were around these people all the time. However, this is a new experience for you, I think, to be um, interviewing, uh, especially an opposition vice president from your party. How did you think the whole experience went? Was it what you expected? Did you enjoy it? What was it like? It was I was really I thought what was cool is I was I'm not sure I would have agreed as staff to do that free flowing and long range, like long range of an interview. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really cool that they did. And I think it shows that this current team she's got around her, they've got confidence. They know they want to put her out more as a spokesperson because, you know, an interview that goes almost 30 minutes, open ended, six different hosts, it could kind of go any direction. I thought it was really cool to just let her answer questions and put her out there. Um, I. Because I've been in countless prep sessions with the former vice president and Mm -hmm. 
if we did an eight-minute interview, we'd probably prep for over an hour with him at least. So I'm curious, like, how much time goes into prepping or if they're a little more, like, let her be her and answer what she wants. The other thing that was cool is I've now met every living vice president, and I got to meet Walter Mondale before he passed. So, oh, wow. Um, that was it was kind of a bucket list. I was like, I'm finally meeting Vice President Harris. Oh, that's terrific, actually. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, all right. That's great. And then we pressed her a little bit on how the Biden-Harris campaign is enticing voters. What did you think of that messaging? So this is where I took a little bit of issue, and we talked about it on the show, is um, the vice president is incredibly compelling on two issues in particular, the issue of democracy, the threat that Trump poses, and this is about the future of democracy, the values of our country. And then she is a strong messenger on abortion, which we know is super animating among women, but a good way to reach moderates and independents. You know, and understandably, she was bringing everything back to it. Everything came yes. back to it. The part I had a li- that I think, not to say I had issue with, I think they're going to have to tighten as the race goes on. They're going to get challenged by the likely Republican nominee, Donald Trump, is okay, but what are you actually doing to address that? Um, I think that they, you know, you can run on, we support reproductive rights, we support abortion, but how are you going to restore it in places like Texas or Florida where the states have already made a decision on it and right now they're in charge? And yes, there's some things in the courts, but I think that could be a challenge. And then I think the democracy argument is powerful, but to the point Sarah Haynes made, the economy is still number one. So it's got to be a they've got to kind of come up with a holistic like your life will feel better under us. But also we can't take for granted democracy being on the line and have an actual deliverable on abortion. Yeah. But again, by the way, this is why Biden Harris are dying to run against Donald Trump, because they get to run on abortion, on democracy, on January 6th. Like they've got a pretty strong message against Donald Trump. If it is literally any other Republican it's a much tougher race. They they don't have the they don't have the, you know, the state of, you know, American democracy is on the line. If you have a woman like Nikki Haley, she can address abortion with a lot more nuance than someone like Donald Trump can. Um, and it just astounds me that Republicans want to run the weakest candidate against Joe Biden, which is Donald Trump. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, situation we found ourselves in. And just from uh, uh, my perspective, I thought it was a terrific interview. Mm-hmm. I was so proud of the tough questions that uh, you guys asked. And mm-hmm. um, I thought the vice president did a great job meeting those challenges. And um, it just reaffirmed that this is a place where not only politicians want to come, but need to come. They need mm-hmm. to come here, have these conversations, face people from different perspectives and not just exist in a bubble. Um, totally. and, and certainly there are people <clears throat> on our panel that are very big supporters of the VP, mm-hmm. but they also are getting questions from a Republican or mm-hmm. getting questions from moderates, getting yeah. questions from. And honestly, even the question Joy Behar asked was, was tough. tough. Yeah. It was tough. These are the critiques. What do you say to them? I mean, mm-hmm. I was I was happy. also final thing on that. I was struck by um, she's incredibly warm and personable. And mm-hmm. like because you we get that time at, with her at the commercial break that you don't see on air. And this is always the case with politicians. But a lot of times they show a little more personality off camera sure. than on. So that's always a challenge. I'm probably guilty of it, too. But I was I was just I was very impressed with her off air. I thought she was like just charming to be around. Well, we talked about something on air today, and this could continue your streak of meeting living vice presidents, because I think most of the people we've talked about are people you've met in your life. We talked about who could be the Trump's VP pick on the show. And you said something I'm not sure we've heard before. We kind of went through it quickly. But you said that that at one point Trump questioned if he should replace Pence with Nikki Haley in the 2020 election. 
Please tell me more about that. Yeah. I, I have all these tidbits that I kind of forget about. And then I'm like, oh, that's actually probably <laughs> kind of significant for the history books. Um, I want to say it was probably around June 2020. Um, the world's on fire. COVID, social justice protests. Trump's numbers are starting to look in the tank against Joe Biden. And I'm in the Oval with then White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany. You're actually, we're, I think we're, if I remember correctly, we're in the back dining room off the Oval. And Trump turns to us and he says, hey, what do you think if we replaced Mike with Nikki Haley? Jared really wants me to. And I think I pretty quickly, I was then very close with Pence, um, mm-hmm. very quickly chimed in, no, you know, that stick with what's steady, stick with what you know, you don't want to signal chaos or desperation. He ultimately didn't do it. But afterward, I remember being like, whoa, I mean, that's a, I'm not I'm trying to think. I mean, it's definitely never happened in modern history to replace your running mate. Um, but it, it spoke to a couple things to me. I think he knew what bad of shape he was in in 2020. He also knows he lost the election. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to to Nikki Haley's talents, who he's now just scorching and saying is, you know, she's not tough enough. She's not qualified. She's a globalist rhino. He no one was a bigger fan of Nikki Haley's than Donald Trump, literally up until the end of the 2020 election. And I, I think not for nothing, um, having a historic ticket of having Vice President Kamala Harris running with Joe Biden. I think he thought about, you know, what if I run with a woman as well? Mm-hmm. A woman of color. And yeah. a woman of color, yeah. No, that would have been very interesting. Um, and it would have then put her in a better position to run now if she had been a, a VP. Very much so. Theoretically. Um, all right. Well, that's really interesting. So, okay. We had uh, well, one one last thing. What's your prediction right now for Trump VP? I still think Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That's what you said on the show, um, yeah. He, I, I reject any of, the, any of the speculation that he's going to go with somebody fringy like a Tucker Carlson or a Carrie Lake. Definitely not anyone who's never held office before. And I agree with Sarah Haynes that the House is beneath him. Um, you know, I think that a governor, I think he's seen her. I've seen her. I've been at Trump rallies where there's 30,000 people packed in there and mm-hmm. he calls her up to be his warm-up act. And she can do it. She's got that Southern pastor's daughter, like, can get people energized. I think she's the very much the favorite right now. But it's Trump, so things could always change. Sure. SNL will have to get Melissa McCarthy yeah. on speed dial again <laughs> and get that ready for that. Wow. Well, it'll be interesting. Um, she's been a guest on the show, so I'm sure she'd come on again. And, when you, and you know she she can be very combative, but mm-hmm. then she's got a warm side to her. Like, she's – I'll say that she's an incredibly skilled politician. I think it if – Taking my emotions out of it and the fact that I want Donald Trump to lose, I do think she would be a savvy pick. Yeah, interesting. I've told the story before, but my uh, my favorite memory of her appearance on the show, she was on with her dad and she was all nervous. And right before she walked out, she turned to me and said, you know, I really love Sister Act, I have to say. <laughs> she, <laughs> she That's the one, yeah, the one unifying thing on the show. <laughs> exactly. Doesn't matter where you come from. Yes. You love Whoopi's movies. Kimberly Guilfoyle also said she loved it when she was on, like ages yeah. ago when she was on. <laughs> Who doesn't love Sister Act? Exactly. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. This is according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed 
the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash view. Just go to Indeed.com slash view right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash view. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Woodward and Bernstein. Pen and paper. Wine and cheese. What about the perfect pairing when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're delivering daily digests or serving sensational scoops, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash view, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash view now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash view. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So today we had someone on the show that you actually were the first person to bring them up to me. It was New York Times bestselling author Tim Alberta, and he talked about the world of, of evangelicals and Trump. And you said uh, his early days had parallels to your own. Tell me how your upbringing was similar. Yeah. So I don't talk about it a ton, but um, I was raised evangelical. Um, it wasn't until college that I, I'm, I'm still Christian, but I'm, I'm now Episcopalian. I, I left the church for a number of reasons, um, but a big part of it was the politics of it. This was when Obama was president and I would find myself going to my church that I went through. I, I went to all of college and it felt like we're talking about, you know, what's happening today in the White House and like what we should be like policy issues, not like feeding our souls. It didn't I didn't feel like we were focusing on what always resonated with me with my faith. But going further than that, I mean, I've been open about this. I have immediate family who have not spoken to me since I started criticizing Donald Trump and they still very much support Donald Trump. They are rooting for him to win despite his attacks on me, despite his behavior and the countless offenses. And I I try to remove judgment when I talk about them or friends of mine or people I grew up in the church with, 
because I think that faith is probably the most compelling thing in any of our lives to to drive a position that we have. I mean, wars have been fought over faith. Most wars, frankly, had yeah. some religious element to it because it's something so foundational that I think it makes people able to turn off kind of everything else in their brain and be driven by it. And I, I'm glad we had Tim Monks. We talk about evangelicals constantly, but I'm not sure people understand them that well. He He does incredibly well. I agreed with every word he said, which is I was taught growing up, like, our kingdom is not here on earth, and our job here is to be representatives of Christ. It's to be kind, to be decent, and to behave the way he would want us to, not to be combative. And the the language that I see in our politics now, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it at some point in my life, I just find it honestly disturbing and the farthest thing from my Christian faith. And one thing, just anecdotally, I don't know why this sticks out to me so much, but I I did this like I was involved in this youth group growing up in my church and it, it did lean kind of political. We actually went on the road and campaigned for George Bush. And at the time I was 15 and I didn't really put together why that was weird that like a faith group was out right. doing this. But the leader of that group is now like a D-list MAGA celebrity. And he comes after me publicly with the most vitriolic comments. And I'm like, you knew me as a 15 year old Christian in a youth group that you led but I am an apostate now because I don't support who seems to be your Lord and Savior, Donald Trump. It's just it's a very it's a it's a scary thing, but it's an important thing that Tim is shedding light on. It's got to be so hard. I mean, when you made the decision to do this, when you made the decision to leave MAGA, to leave Trump, to, to speak openly against mm-hmm. him, did you anticipate any of that? Did you expect people to to turn on you the way they did? Was that something that you calculated in your head or? I I knew that there would be backlash. I did, but keep in mind, this was at the time of January 6th. I thought that more would follow. I knew for sure there would be backlash from people close to me and people especially that I'd worked with Mm -hmm. with Trump. But I thought that there would be a bigger group of us, and I took, like, faith in that. Yeah. It turned out basically me, Liz Cheney, and a handful of other people. She and I have joked about it. But on the friend and family part of it, was that something that you anticipated, or was that just—I mean, it must be painful— it's in, it's incredibly painful. I kind of jumped with and, and spoke out without even processing. I didn't yeah. alert people in my life. I mean, Cassidy mentioned that. Like, I wish that I maybe I'm not sure would have made a difference. I said, hey, just heads up. I'm going to be denouncing Trump mm-hmm. tomorrow and I'm not going to. Right and back. here's why. And here's and, and why. And maybe to try to get. And I did have those conversations. Yeah. I tried to rationalize with some people close to me after and it just it didn't break through. Yeah. No, um, I mean, I think everyone has political differences in family and mm-hmm. friends. And I think. There's different ways to deal with it. There's the just ignore it, don't talk about mm-hmm. it. There's the make jokes about it. Right. Or there's the just go have a fight every time you're right. together and everyone deals with it in a different way. And but, there's there's the normal, like, healthy disagreement yeah. in, in families and friend groups on politics. But I think in this MAGA era, there's there's some that just goes too far. But can I mention one other thing? So I've known Tim Alberta basically my whole career. I've known him for over 10 years. Um, and it was funny as I was – chatting with him after the show, he's like, um, we're going down memory lane. He says, remember, I warned you about the guys you were working for. And I distinctly remember this is when I was working for the Freedom Caucus at the time led by Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan. Mm-hmm. And I got drinks with Tim, who's a reporter at the time covering politics, and was like, no, these guys really believe in what we're fighting for. And I, I was a young ideologue. So yeah. I was like, I want these things. We're fiscal conservatives. We're going to take on the man. And he's like, I hear you. I actually like in some ways align with your politics, but I'm telling you. 
you're hitching your wagon to people who are not driven by the the same things you are. And so 10 years later for him to be like, told you so. I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you were right there. <laughs> now, here's a question because you're in the room. Do you have any insight about how religious or not religious Trump really is? He's not religious at all. That's that's what's so crazy to me. Um, I, I, would, I would get outreach from like prominent faith leaders being like, I just want to come and pray with him. And he'll, he'll do that for a photo op. This is not a man of any practicing faith. This is not a man who knows how to talk about faith. And his his perception of people of faith is a caricature of what it actually is. He he just doesn't understand it. If there's two things he really doesn't understand, it's public service and it's faith. He basically sees evangelicals, but I'd say people of faith in general as a means to an end. He sees them as like all they care about is abortion. That's it. He doesn't understand like the person of Christ, the notion of like how we're supposed to behave and what drives us. But unfortunately, instead of him adapting to the direction of the church, it feels like in some ways the church has adapted to his direction. Yeah. And you have to think when these uh, spiritual leaders meet with him, they must sense the same thing you do. They must mm-hmm. sense that it's not genuine. It's It feel I they must because I don't know how you could sense anything otherwise. Um, so then they view him as a means to an end, I guess. I think that's what yeah. it is. And, I, and to Tim's point, the more political the evangelical church has become, that's how they justify it, is right. it's the means to an end. Right. But by the way, there have been some very consistent Christian leaders throughout oh, the Trump era. Like Russell Moore is somebody who's been outspoken and, you know, people that to listen to, but it is this this sect of evangelicalism that's... that's no, I have such respect for people that, that are deeply faithful. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it is hard to reconcile with what we see from President Trump's mm-hmm. actions. Yeah. But yeah. Joy rattled him off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, now let's change gears and let's get on to the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was heavy. That was heavy. But um, but I appreciate you talking about it. Um, on the podcast this week, we've talked about if you should ever tell your friend that you don't like their husband or partner. Um, have you ever done that? I've not. So, OK, husband, it's too late. Like once right. the person's married, I think, what are you asking them to do? Like to leave the person? Um, there was one scenario we got where it was a friend became engaged. Yes. And I guess all the friend group had major issues with the fiance. I, I think generally speaking, you have to just bite your tongue if you don't like who your friend is dating or engaged to. However, if so many people have issues and they're like foundational, then you should say something. And the scenario we got, like he didn't want kids. He um, and she really wanted kids. You can't you can't really reconcile that. You need that's a pretty fundamental thing in life. Mm-hmm. And if you marry someone who doesn't let you have kids, you're going to spend the rest of your life regretting that you didn't get to. Um, and he had like bad behavior issues and there were a million red flags. But generally speaking, you don't really get a huge say in who even your closest friends um, are are serious with as long as it's like a safe and healthy relationship. Right. If it's just like I don't like his personality or I wish he was a little more this or that. That I don't think you say something. If it's something very serious, you have to. I've had friends talk to me about having problems in their marriage and th- what should I do and things like yeah. that. And that's always such a tricky thing, too, it's because tricky. if you say, like, I-, I would move on, I'd make the change, and then they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at a certain point, you have to just say, like, I'm willing to sacrifice the friendship on the, on the basis of telling them what I think they need to do and to try to help them. In, in Exactly. Like, if it's more minor, listen, give the best advice, but know that, like, you don't want to risk if they don't mm-hmm. take it, that that could ruin your friendship. I said this was going to be the fun stuff, but now <laughs> I it got dark again. What's going on? All right. Um, this is There's nothing that, but, but lightness here. We talked about open marriages on the show this week, and I asked Sarah and Joy if they would ever be open to this. Um, and, and as uh, the millennial on the ta- at the table, 
Do you think that younger generations have a more progressive outlook to relationships in general? Okay, so there's a debate on this. I think I think younger generations perhaps have a different outlook. However, however, as a millennial and as somebody who likes to try to at least explain Gen Z, mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest. Now I'm going to make it depressing again. If you're a millennial, <laughs> like I wasn't financially stable until I got married and frankly, like got this job. And I was a senior White House staffer. Like we're right. the generation of the financial crisis, like student loan debt. So I think marriage is a milestone that we shouldn't put off for like like real reasons if there's an option there. But I also think most people I know, with few exceptions, do genuinely want that companionship. But there are exceptions. Whoopi always says marriage isn't for me. I have one girlfriend who's like that. I think that I don't know. I think that it's I don't think it's a generational thing. I think that an open marriage, generally speaking, one person doesn't actually want the marriage to be open. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I just, guess so. I can't imagine doing it. That's I can't the thing ima- is I can't even is, imagine yeah. it. But, um, but there are people that just aren't like, again, I'm pretty jealous um, uh, yeah. and uh, not like a scary jealous. But yeah. like I, I, I'm jealous. Yeah, too. I, I think I'm built that way. If my wife was dating someone else, I don't think I'd ever say yes to it. But if I did, I'd still be jealous. And on the flip side, I would be pissed if my husband wasn't jealous if I was seeing someone yes. else. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't compute for me just on the human brain. Mm-hmm. Like that would mean they're too passive. And it, to me, it would feel like they're too passive and don't care enough. Right. Um, I also think one relationship is enough work mm-hmm. um, that I just don't understand having time for the other things. And also my take was just be single if you want to like date around. Well, when you were single, did you date multiple people at the same time? You did. Um, I tended to have like a roster, but again, like mm-hmm. within reason. I would like usually have the person I liked the most, but then I'd have someone else that I'd grab dinner with in case the person I was most interested in didn't work out. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so, and then I guess that's kind of a template for what it's like later, but I guess again, yeah, no, I, it's not for me. It's um, not for me. Apparently, like swinging is very big in like the suburbs and stuff these days. Well, I feel like I hear every week about like some kind of swinging situation. We talked about this on in the Hot Topics meeting, but yeah, there's all these symbols you can yeah. leave, like you know, Anirondack chairs <laughs> yeah. in your your yard or something. I'm not kidding. I've heard from three different friends who are like in suburbs of major cities that they've like accidentally been asked to like swing subtly <laughs> with a cuddle and they're like what is going on yeah, yeah uh, again it, i've yet to be approached yeah but, uh... <laughs> same please, right. please don't approach no 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 approaching please all right so thank you for joining me Alyssa. tomorrow i'll be back with anna navarro in the meantime if you have a question or you want advice from me or a co-host like Alyssa farrah griffin please check the episode description for the number to our behind the table hotline this is very exciting we want everybody to do it Call up. We'll play uh, your recordings if you've got a good question. And, uh, you know, relationship advice. And Wait, can they leave a comment as a review, like a question? They can leave a question. There's all sorts of ways. There's all sorts of things. Yeah, you can leave a question on the review if you'd like. Um, I do enjoy reading all the reviews. Mm-hmm. Even the one I, someone left a review saying, I don't think you read all the reviews. I do. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so please leave a review, follow, tell your friends. And uh, if you've got a question for Alyssa, leave us a message on the hotline or type it in. All right. See you tomorrow. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.